Hello and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurgen. This is Biblical History, the story of God's work through the ages. Lesson 10, Return and Hope. Seventy years in captivity was a grueling experience for the Jewish people. God had sent them into Babylon because of their persistent idolatry and apostasy. While the people had tried to blame their ancestors for their plight, the prophet Ezekiel emphatically affirmed they were just as at fault. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Ezekiel 18.20 The sins of the people of Judah led to their bondage. But even in captivity, God had a plan. The book of Daniel is key in understanding the exile. Daniel was taken to Babylon as a young man and served in the king's royal court. He interpreted a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had where he saw a great statue made of different kinds of material. Daniel explained that the different materials represented different empires and that in the days of the last great world empire, the Romans, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever, Daniel 2.44. The kingdom of Daniel's prophecy aligns perfectly with the eternal kingdom promised to David in 2 Samuel 7.12-16. When the prophet Daniel was an old man, he witnessed the transition from the Babylonian empire to the second empire of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the Persians. Daniel served the Babylonian court for decades after Nebuchadnezzar's death. The king's grandson was a man named Belshazzar. One night, Belshazzar threw a lavish, drunken party when suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, Daniel 5 verse 5. Now, Belshazzar did not understand the message written by the mysterious hand, so he summoned Daniel to interpret it. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, Daniel 5, 26-28. History reveals that the Persian army diverted the river which flowed through Babylon and snuck in under the city's great walls. Once inside, they sacked the capital. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom, Daniel 5.30. Now, none of this caught God by surprise. Daniel had already declared that the Persians would overtake the Babylonians. What's even more amazing is that 200 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah announced that God would raise up the Persian king Cyrus to release the Jews from bondage. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 45. Thus, in keeping with God's divine decree, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah, any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Second Chronicles 36, 22, and 23. 
The age which followed the Babylonian captivity is often referred to as the post-exilic era. There are three historical books which recount events of the post-exilic age. That's the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Additionally, there are three prophetic books written during this time period, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The post-exilic books have four main areas of focus, so let's talk about them. Number one, these books talk about reconstituting the Israelite nation. After 70 years in captivity, the Jews who were permitted to return to their land had to start from scratch. They had to rebuild the temple, refortify the city and its defenses, reestablish the priesthood, and reinstate sacrifices which had not been made for decades. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah document these efforts, which were encouraged by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Now, of course, there were many challenges to rebuilding. After 70 years, other people had taken residence in the land formerly occupied by Judah. So the Jews had to navigate how to deal with their new neighbors who were sometimes hostile. Israel's leaders also had to fight against the people's apathy and misplaced priorities. Haggai, for example, rebuked the people for prioritizing the construction of their own homes over the temple, the house of God. He told them they need to put the Lord first. Then all these other things will be added to you. Reconstituting the Israelite nation was a monumental task. A second focus of the post-exilic books is about rededicating the people to the covenant. Ezra was the principal leader in this effort. He was a scribe who studied the Torah of Moses and the history of Israel. He knew that it was unfaithfulness to the covenant that led to the Babylonian captivity in the first place. God's people had to be completely loyal to him if they wanted to ensure that nothing like the exile would ever happen again. The way Ezra set out to accomplish this was to teach the law diligently to the people. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. This comes from Ezra 7, verse 10, Nehemiah 8, verses 5 through 8. In addition to reconstituting the Israelite nation and rededicating the people to the covenant, a third area of focus during the post-exilic time is about reassessing the presence of God. Before the exile, Jerusalem was the center of Israelite life and worship. The temple was God's dwelling place. The mercy seat that lay on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was his throne. When the Jews would ascend the hill into Jerusalem, they would sing special songs, one of which begins, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verses 1 and 2. In Babylon, however, all of this was taken away from the people. So they had to ponder the question, is God still with us even when we're separated from the holy city? The post-exilic book of Esther 
seeks to answer that question. It recounts an incident involving a young Jewish woman who became the queen of the Persian Empire. Queen Esther and her uncle, the pious Mordecai, learned of a plot to have the Jewish people exterminated. Now, Mordecai was confident that God would rescue his people, but he asked his niece, who knows? Who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, Esther 4 and verse 14. The implication is that God was providentially working behind the scenes through Esther to bring about the salvation of his people. Yes, God was still with his people, even though they were removed from Jerusalem. This truth helped the Jews to realize that although Jerusalem was still important for many reasons, a universal God is sovereign over all people everywhere. Even King Solomon himself admitted this when he dedicated the temple. The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much this, this temple I have built, 1 Kings 8 and verse 27. Finally, in addition to reconstituting the Israelite nation, rededicating the people to the covenant, and reassessing the presence of God, a fourth focus of the post-exilic books is about reviving hope for the future. The second temple built during this era was a disappointment. The elders who remembered Solomon's temple before its destruction pointed out that the new temple was not nearly as glorious or magnificent. Additionally, you'll remember that when Solomon's temple was dedicated, the glory cloud of God filled the building, just as it had done when Moses built the tabernacle centuries earlier. But no such event is recorded as taking place for the second temple. God did not appear to be dwelling in this new holy house. Another area of disappointment during this time was Israel's inability to self-govern. While Jerusalem was being rebuilt and the priesthood was reestablished, Israel was still a vassal of the Persian Empire. So there was no re-enthronement of a Davidic king. Now, this was a huge problem. We've seen in previous studies how central the Davidic monarchy was to God's future kingdom plans. Without the heir and son of David ruling over his people, the full restoration of Israel was incomplete. For this reason, the prophets of the post-exilic age continued to look forward to a future time of hope. Now, I want to say biblical hope is not a wish for something to happen. That's the way we often use the word. I hope this happens. I hope that happens. Hope in the Bible is an earnest expectation based on the sure promises of God. The prophets were confident that God would do for Israel exactly as he had declared, and they optimistically look forward to that time. For example, look at this list from Andrew Hill of messianic prophecies found just in the post-exilic book of Zechariah. Quote, Zechariah has more to say about the messianic shepherd king than any other Old Testament prophetic book except Isaiah, including coming from a low and humble station of life, restoring of Israel by the blood of his covenant, serving as shepherd to a scattered and disoriented people, 
being betrayed for a payment of silver, being pierced and struck down, returning in glory and delivering Israel from her enemies, ruling as king in peace and righteousness, establishing a new world order. A generation after Zechariah, Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament canon. Now, he anticipated a time when Elijah the prophet, who'd been dead for centuries, would announce the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Malachi 4.5. Malachi said that the Lord would eventually come to his temple, but that the people of Malachi's day were not prepared for his divine arrival. Years after the last prophets of the Old Testament era died, the Persian Empire fell to Alexander the Great. Alexander's Grecian Empire divided after his death until it was finally overtaken by the rising juggernaut of Rome. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey the Great surrounded and captured the holy city of Jerusalem. Zion, the city of David, was taken for the glory of Rome. Pompey arrogantly marched into the most holy place of the temple and then he returned home to Italy. In spite of the fact that the Jews were almost entirely ruled by foreign powers from the time of their return to Jerusalem to the time of the New Testament, hope was still alive. Jewish literature produced during the Second Temple period documents the confidence Israelites had that God would rescue them from their enemies that he would send his Messiah, the son of David, and that their restoration was at hand. Even when we open the first pages of the New Testament, we see this hope exemplified in many noble Israelites. The Virgin Mary was told that she would have a baby by the power of the Holy Spirit. The angel said, this baby will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. This was the promise. This is exactly what the people had been waiting for. The king has arrived. Mary later sang a song about her child, which says in part that God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Luke 1, 54 and 55. When Joseph and Mary took their baby to the temple, they encountered an aged, righteous, and devout Jew named Simeon. God had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw the long-awaited Messiah. When Simeon took Jesus into his arms, he praised God, saying in part, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Luke 2, 30 and 31. God promised Eve, Abraham, and Moses. He promised David, Israel, and the prophets. He promised the entire world that he would send his Messiah, the great king, the son of David, to establish his eternal kingdom. When Jesus was born, all those who encountered the child knew that the promises of God had finally come to pass. The hope of Israel had arrived, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
Matthew 1.23. As the Apostle Paul so powerfully declared, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Consider now some concluding truths from return and hope. Number one, God has proven his trustworthiness. He's done this by fulfilling many ancient promises like bringing Israel back to their land after 70 years in Babylonian exile. We've learned about the return, that post-exilic time when Israel worked to reconstitute itself as a nation. We've learned about the meaning of loyalty. Ezra knew that disloyalty to God was the cause of the exile and endeavored to make sure it never happened again. We've talked about God's presence, how it wasn't limited to Jerusalem. His work is universal, as is evidenced in books like Esther. And we've talked about biblical hope, that earnest expectation the people of God have for the future. And so the stage was set from Eden to Abraham to Moses, to Israel, to David, to the captivity and the return. God had prepared the world for his anointed king. However, what God had in store for his people and the nations was even far beyond what they could have ever imagined. As that beloved text of John 3.16 declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 